Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code program for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program. You're listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and we've got a slightly extended episode this week. We're going to be exploring one of the most impressive residences I've ever been in and seeing what happens when a very private individual is put on public display. We do this for you, and if you like what we do, like our sponsor. Our sponsor is audible.co.uk, and we've teamed up with them to offer you a free audiobook of your choice. All you have to do is register for a one-month free trial to claim your free audiobook as a 150,000 titles to choose from. You've got a 30-day free trial there, and that means you can choose a free audiobook, and it's yours to keep whether or not you decide to cancel in the trial period. Uh, and there's more good news as well, by the way. If you already trialed the service more than 12 months ago, Audible's giving you a chance to get your hands on another audiobook for free. You just have to sign up at www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist. Treat your ears and your intellect, and in doing so, you'll be supporting this show. Hey, baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sounds. You ain't never seen the light before, just a stone throw from your front door. from West London from a room that's going to appeal to you if your thing is salmon and burgundy, luxury wallpaper and a lot of plates. I mean, that's not really doing excellent service to the opulence and elegance of the room in which I find myself. We're looking out on a garden on a damp London afternoon and recovering from the shell shock of this morning is Daniel Robbins he's the senior curator here at Leighton House Museum hi hi there we should explain possibly the shell shock for you the silence surrounding us is probably quite welcome that's right well today coincides with our annual invasion if that's the right word of school children because today we have a prize giving for our annual schools art exhibition so any child at school in Kensington and Chelsea submits work and we hold an exhibition and normally this is a great event that happens in the garden but due to torrential downpour it was brought inside and as you could imagine having uh, about 200 children and their teachers and parents all walking through the house all at once was somewhat unusual and alarming but it all went very well. Now I'm going to make a guess here because some of these plates are hung quite low and there's an awful lot of pottery here. I'm going to guess that the pace of life generally is reasonably sedate here. I think that's right. It was built by the artist Frederick Layton as his home, and he was the only person, in fact, who ever lived in it. So he occupied this house, substantial as it is. It just has a single bedroom, which was his. And one of the fascinating things about it, really, is trying to imagine and conceive quite how he did live here alone for 30 years and actually occupy this private palace of art. 
Well, there's a lot to dig into, actually, and just a glance at Leighton himself produces some interesting results, or an interesting lack of results, I should say. Mm. He seems to belong to me to a time when there were quite a few adventurers and artists who were putting together some astonishing personal collections of, of various sorts and quite often making their home into some sort of showcase for what they'd turned up. And we have somebody in that mould here, but about the man himself we know remarkably little. Well, he was he was a very well, intensely private person, and I think the fascination about him is how, on the one hand, he became really a figurehead for the art of his time, and so this the late Victorian period when, in a way, when art established an unprecedented popular interest that artists were celebrities. I mean, we can perhaps relate to that a bit today, and perhaps today is the only time before or since then when artists in their lifetime generate that degree of celebrity and that degree of wealth through their work. So he was a great figurehead for the for art. He became the president of the Royal Academy. He was great friends with members of the royal family. Queen Victoria herself came here and on a private visit and was in contact with him throughout this period of time. And he was known to everybody. But if you try and probe beyond that sort of public self, he remains or was managed to be really very discreet, very unforthcoming about himself. And and people who knew him had that sense. I mean, the artist William Powell Frith said, I knew Leighton, I've known him for 30 years, but I don't know him yet. And that was, that was a, a feeling that people had, that there was a barrier who created... A distance between himself and uh, even those he knew well. So, so everyone, you know, thought he was very charming, had wonderful manners. Was you know the, what was said about his French? Well, the only problem was it, it was too perfect. Was the thought, and and people thought there was almost something perhaps too perfect about him in in general. Well, so straight away the question I guess is raised by the fact of this place being open for people to come and take a look inside. Was this something that he intended to happen? How do you think he would have felt about this? Well, that's a very interesting question because it was actually all quite controversial. So he died here in 1896 in the single bedroom. He left everything, so the house, all its contents, which were fabulous collections of fine and decorative art on display throughout it. So he left it all to his two sisters, one called Alexandra and one called Augusta. And we, in fact, have his will, which is a simple piece of of notepaper in which he says, I leave it all to my two sisters. But he seems to have made them aware of bequests that he wished to make, principally, as it turned out, to the Royal Academy, but to private individuals too. And for reasons I've never completely understood, he didn't have the money in the bank, despite having earned very considerable amounts of money through the sale of his work, he didn't have the money to settle the bequests. And so he seems to have said to his sisters, if you need to sell the house and all the contents of the house to raise the money to settle the bequests, then you should just go ahead and do that. So he had no apparent interest in it becoming a a museum. So they tried to sell it all intact with all his original collections all still here so it could become an instant museum sort of along the lines of the Stone Museum in a similar kind of vein, but there was no no interest in anybody taking it on in those terms. They then tried to sell the house at auction, just as a house for sale. It didn't sell at auction, and the auctioneer wrote this little comment, which was more or less saying, don't blame me, it's only got one bedroom, it's a sort of unsellable proposition. So they were then left with the only option of selling the contents. So Christie's held an eight-day sale after Leighton died in the summer of 1896, 
when everything was sold and entirely dispersed. So the sisters were then left with this house that had nothing in it, because they just sold it all, but they couldn't find a buyer for So they had an empty house, and they were approached by somebody who was clearly a forceful personality called Mrs Barrington, who had lived across the back of the garden from here and was a friend of Leighton and the other artists who lived around here. And she said she would take it on and open it as a kind of cultural facility as where there would be concerts and there would be art on display and there would be talks and lectures and that's what happened although Leighton's neighbour who was an artist called Val Princep who also lived in a purpose-built studio house and knew Leighton for 30 years then got into a dispute because he said these moves to turn it into a museum Leighton never expressed any interest in that to him and he thought the people who were trying to do that were sort of in it for their own glory, meaning Mrs Barrington, <laughs> and that uh, this was contrary to Leighton's wishes. So, of course, then Leighton's sisters wrote a very aggrieved letter of response, which I think was published in The Times, saying they know best what their brother wanted, they were acting in accordance with what they understood to be his wishes. And then what really annoyed Val Princep, the neighbour, was the proposition that the street should change its name from Holland Park Road to Leighton Road as the, so the museum would be distinctive and, um, and he complained, writing a letter saying that he'd lived in Holland Park Road for as long as Leighton ever had and his house was bigger than Leighton so he paid more rates than Leighton so why should this special <laughs> rebranding of his street be allowed? So it didn't actually happen. This has all turned very neighbourly very quickly, hasn't yes, it? Yes, it, exactly. So, um, so they did, it was a little bit controversial and there was a dispute but... By 1900, it had reopened as a public museum, and other than a period during the Second World War and after the Second World War, it's been open as a museum ever since. So there was something that you said there that grabbed me, because at one point I found myself wondering why somebody so private would have a place that could have become a museum merely by opening the door. Wouldn't it be rather strange for somebody to curate their own home in that way um, but you use the word studio in describing Princeps place you described it as a, a, a sort of a home studio so mm. is that what was going on here yeah so Leighton had uh, he'd had a very cosmopolitan upbringing he'd lived basically abroad from the age of 11 till he was in his late 20s and he spent time in Germany and then he spent time in Rome and then in Paris and I think on all these cities particularly Rome and Paris were well known for their studio houses and the way artists combined living accommodation with painting accommodation so all this period I think he was soaking up ideas and the the but but sorry to interrupt but in a much deeper way by the sense of it than the traditional grand tour at the time yeah no he was very he was as I say trained abroad and he became part of the kind of artists expatriate artist colonies that were both in Rome and then in Paris and we know that when he came to build this house in the mid-1860s it was a long-held ambition to create a purpose-built studio house and it then set a trend really I mean so a few years later Melbury Road which is the road that runs across the back of the garden was laid out and almost all the plots along it were then bought by another wave of artists who built these purpose-built grand studio houses and the whole point I think was well a it was for an artist an interesting thing to do, to be involved as closely as Leighton was in all the issues about the design and the decoration and how that house would appear. So it was a sort of creative, enjoyable exercise. But there were other motives too. I mean, it meant that you literally had built a place, you were putting yourself on the map. You had a house which you could then 
used to entertain in. So Leighton was at home, always on a Sunday afternoon. He was famous for every year he held a musical recital in his studio, which internationally famous musicians came and performed that. Being at home at, on a Sunday afternoon, meaning what? Rather, rather than watching uh, an antiques show on the TV? <laughs> yes, so meaning society, as it were, could come and call. And descriptions of this, I mean, again, emphasising his kind of cosmopolitan upbringing, was that he would, you know, he could turn from speaking in Italian to speaking in French to speaking in German, depending on who his guest that particular uh, afternoon happened to be. He would open the house, he would take tours around the house for groups of interested people. So it always had a kind of semi-public aspect and a sort of commercial aspect because what you're doing is creating a kind of idea of how a great artist could or should live and that the collections he was displaying showed both his you know, his appreciation of art in all its forms and its broad kind of cultural. So there was you know, Renaissance paintings next to Isnik ceramics, next to Japanese folding screens, a great eclectic set of things, all displayed quite carefully through the house. So you move from one room, which would show one aspect of his interest, almost like a museum, to another room where as in this room in the dining room where the plates were on display. So you understood the person who'd created this house to be very cultivated, very interested in beauty in all its forms, and then your visit would culminate in his enormous painting studio upstairs where his own work was produced. And by that point, I think the idea was you'd sort of understood, you'd brought with you all your understanding of the range of his interests... And in strict sort of commercial terms, it meant having had that experience, mounted this very grand staircase to enter this vast studio, that you must sort of think, whatever's produced in here, you're prepared to pay that much more for it. You're prepared to buy into that kind of sense of this being a proper, serious, successful artist. Who's, it's, it's a million miles away from the idea of the garret, the paint-splattered floor the artist's work piled up in corners. It's a very deliberate, almost a stage on which I think, you know, Leighton... It's interesting, the word that was... When people didn't like him, the word that was used to describe him was artificial. They said there was something artificial about him. And in that sense, you could almost see this as a creation, as a stage on which he performed the role of the great artist. But that has nothing much to do with his private self and his private self is there in the bedroom this surprising this one bedroom which is surprisingly austere and small and unostentatious and the contrast is really obvious between it and the rest of the house it seems like we are pre-programmed to trust the outsider more than the establishment figure and it sounds as though Leighton was part of the establishment well i mean he came in quite late he came in in his 20s having lived abroad and exhibited a picture at the Royal Academy, his first ever picture, which was a hugely ambitious, large canvas called Chimabui Celebrated Madonna is carried in procession through the streets of Florence. And on, <laughs> which, is, which is, in fact, its abbreviated title. because You need a big canvas to fit the <laughs> exactly. title underneath. Because the full title then lists all the artists who are in the procession, so it goes on and on and on. And this picture, by an unknown, was shown at the Royal Academy, and Queen Victoria bought it on the first day of the exhibition. So it was this extraordinary debut. And thereafter, I think, you know, he really did have the ambition and 
invested himself in getting to the heart of the artistic establishment and by his election as the president of the Royal Academy in 1878 he achieved it he did create for himself this extraordinary position perhaps you know a unique position whereby at the time of his death he'd just been ennobled he was Lord Leighton Baron Leighton of Stretton so the only British artist to this day who was given that honour He was also one of the shortest-lived peers of the realm. He died before he'd been to the House of Lords to to whatever happens to you when you go to the House of Lords. So the press speculated after he died in January 1896 whether or not, was he Lord Leighton or not? Should he be referred to as Lord Leighton or not? So again, to give an indication of his position, Queen Victoria issued a statement um, which said in her opinion, which presumably accounted for something, he should be referred to as Lord Leighton. His coffin was taken from here to the Royal Academy, where it effectively lay in state. And then again, with Queen Victoria giving her personal blessing, he was buried in St Paul's Cathedral in an event that was a national... I mean, the streets were lined with people, representatives of the royal family, kind of all European royal families were all filling the cathedral. And he was buried in the crypt right next to Sir Christopher Wren, the architect of the cathedral. And to this day, in the in the north aisle of the cathedral, is a very substantial monument to Leighton, um, still sitting there. Astonishing that somebody who could be afforded such high status mm. uh, just over 100 years ago certainly isn't on my radar, and no. I, I do try and keep my radar fairly mm. switched on. Well, I mean, it's, it's even interesting. So, I mean, by the time he died in 1896, towards the end, right towards the end of the 19th century, it was certainly true that, you know, Impressionism, a new wave of younger artists had begun to make their presence felt, and, and these artists were already while still having this great public recognition and acclaim, were were conscious that there was this art that was following on behind was very different to their own. And even when this had become a museum, certainly by about 1910 and then definitely after the First World War, it was a museum that had been the home of this great artist buried in St Paul's Cathedral in 1896. By 1910, it's clear they're struggling. I mean, it's clear that that reputation has very rapidly started to become eclipsed, that these people, these artists, are seen as figures of another world, of the, the Victorian age. And with some exception, I mean, essentially that's what carries on through the 20th century. So by the middle of the 20th century, the house interiors, these remarkable interiors, had largely been covered over and the house had been kind of neutralised and as much that could be done to remove its Victorian character had happened because it was seen as really irrelevant and of little value. And Leighton's great friend, the artist George Frederick Watts, who lived, if we look out of the window, diagonally across the back of the garden was his great big studio house, which had five different studios in it and was was there till the early 60s and was knocked down in order to make way for the block of flats that sits there now. When that happened, the planners, the planning hearing said, well, the house is quite interesting, but the problem is it belongs to this Victorian artist called George Frederick Watts, who's of no, in, you know, is no interest, so we'll knock it down. You know, and that just it reveals that these artists just did their reputations collapsed, and it's been perhaps since the 70s, 80s that gradually their reputation has recovered. And Leighton was, you know, was absolutely part of that that demise and and now hopefully recovery. Mm.
Well, we'll see. I've seen a couple of pictures of his, and hopefully we'll see one or two mm. more as well. We should get moving, actually, yep. shouldn't we? They are so strikingly Victorian, and yeah. there's a, an image. Well, it's sort of a little bit pre-Raphaelite, but it also looks as though it belongs on a chocolate box mm. of a flame-haired maiden seeming to gesture towards the sky, mm. and you get that whole idea, you know, the setting of the sun on the empire, that mm. whole vibe, don't you? Yeah. And early 20th century, I know there was a big reaction. We can probably see why with where the huge Victorian machine took mankind at the start of the 20th century but the the 10s the 20s there was quite a reaction against all of that stuff wasn't there sorry now i'm proposing to teach you about (laughs) what what am i doing should we have a look out the window and uh, see what we can see i'm struck by the red uh, painted floorboards here i mean this is a sacrilegious thing to do to a wooden floor anyway was it like this when you found it yeah the reason when we came to restore the house the reason we know a lot about what it looked like is that because he was so famous and his house was so famous that articles were written about it that were published in in periodicals and newspapers, not just in this country, but, I mean, literally all over the world. In Australia, we found, in in America, in France. And these articles would describe in great, great detail the interiors of the house and where pictures were hanging and often would be accompanied by a photograph or an illustration... And a lot of them said the floor in this room was painted red and the walls were red and the floors had been stripped off sometime in that sort of post-war restoration of it. But finding out they had been once red, it was possible to then look for the evidence and indeed under the edges of the skirting and tucked away were tiny bits of the original red paint which we could then match. And and the reason this is red, it goes back to this question of the collections, is because in here he had this display not of paintings but of plates And so the red, I think, is a deliberate foil for the fact that it was full of blue and white ceramics. So it's an example of where the decoration of the room actually relates to the contents that were originally here. And that's why the sale of the contents after he died is such a tragedy in a way, because it broke that that connection as to, you know, otherwise you just think, well, why is this room red in Mm. this way? But it's explained by the original collections that were here. And so you've been able to recreate some of the decor, but I've got to assume that gathering together the same pieces of art would be an impossible task. Exactly. So when it came to the restoration, what we were determined to do was to try and reconnect the idea of the collections and the house and the form of the rooms and the function of the rooms all being thought through. So we had to be very open-minded about how we did that so in some cases we were able to track down the paintings that he had owned and bring them back and hang them on loan and some we've purchased back where they were um, and in the case of the plates in here so if you were to buy an isnic plate of the right date you know they would be ten thousand twenty thousand pounds a plate and we needed 48 of them at least and so even if you could find them they would be unaffordable and presumably if somebody cottoned onto what you were doing the price would gradually creep up wouldn't exactly it? so so and we'd be very wary and nervous about hanging them on a nail effectively and similarly we know some of the plates he had are in the british museum and are in the vna and we could ask to borrow them back but they could only come back to be displayed in a very secure case not in the way we were trying to suggest how it had been. So the way in this instance how we got round that was that we were selling in our shop already ceramics plates painted by an Iznik, a Turkish craftsman who makes copies or versions of Iznik ceramics. And so we talked to him about whether he could supply the right number of plates in the right kind of dimensions. And it's one of the interesting things is that today we expect everything to be, and we demand everything to be perfect. We want no trace of sort of of 
slippage or mistake. And what makes it is an extremics what they are is that they are very self-evidently handmade things that the glazes sometimes have run that the colors are not are not entirely evenly painted so the way around this was that in the end we agreed that we'd sell the seconds things that the chap in turkey had rejected because they weren't quite perfect which was much more economic from our point of view but it didn't matter because the whole thing was about the overall effect and reinstating the hang of these plates as Leighton had them rather than each individual object being uh, significant because we're trying to convey his thinking and his approach rather than the impossible task of bringing every single item that he had back here. That's a very fine judgment to make as a curator. It it is. I mean, and it was one that we were, you know, I was concerned about how people would take this house because it combines... So in the dining room, the dining table is his dining table. So it is a combination of, of real objects that were here when he lived here, objects that are very similar to the objects we because from these wonderful photographs we can match objects to those photographs and then in the case of the plates objects that are absolutely entirely modern versions as it were and of course the next step with the plates would have been to drop them on the floor bury them in the garden chip them you know so it is always a question of how far do you go in trying to suggest age or suggest authenticity in that in that way and in this particular room the next big step is uh, there was a suite of furniture that was originally designed for the house by his friend, who was his architect, called George Aitchison, and Leighton himself. And all of this this suite was sold after he died, like everything else, and has never been seen since. And uh, in this instance, there was a huge sideboard that sat between these two doors. It was height lined through with the top of the doors. It, it was ebonized this black finish that you see on all the woodwork in the house so it was very much part of the thinking and so uh, we've had a long project of interpreting the photographs and drawings of that furniture so we're making this sideboard to put it back in position and it has inlaid into it the same motifs that are incised into the fireplaces and the doors so it's trying to communicate to the visitors that the whole house and some of its furnishings, it was all conceived as one creative endeavour um, with Leighton at the helm of all of it. It's a really interesting process of, of uh, hitting the rewind button and gradually putting everything yeah. closer and closer to uh, some original ideal state. Mm. How far on that journey are you? Well, I think we've definitely sort of now got the framework for that in the, the sort of key pieces. So the dining table is back here. And quite, I've got to say, the fireplace around is yeah. something to behold. That's yeah. that's a, an authentic case. That's the original fireplace. And in fact, we found a thing in Leighton's lease agreement when he, because he leased the house originally, is that if he was ever to move house, he had the right to take away all the fireplaces and move them with him and substitute plain ones. Well, I'm not surprised about you that. You can see that each one he definitely invested money and time and thought into into the making of them. We're at a distance here, and it's in dark wood, but these are either dragons or griffins carved into the woodwork. Superb craftsmanship there with the shields that they're holding. Turning over to the light outside, and we can we can see sculpture out there, but I think this sort of suggests how the area used to be. I recorded over at Carlisle's house mm-hmm. not so long ago, and I guess that would be around the, the right sort of time. We'd be roughly contemporaneous. Mm-hmm. But what would this area have been like? Well, would I mean, it, I think the countryside. Yeah, I mean, the, when he built this house first in the 1860s, and if he'd looked out of this window, he would have looked out onto completely undeveloped parkland. This was the estate, the private estate of the 
the Holland family of which the remains of Holland House, which was bombed in the war, are still in the centre of Holland Park. And gradually they sold off land around the perimeter of the estate, and so Leighton was able to secure this plot and his friend the plot next door. Uh, immediately to his right over the wall was the farm, the working farm of the Holland estate. And so over the time he lived here, over the 30 years, he was almost constantly doing something to his house, I mean, embellishing it, extending it in some way. And as I said, around, uh, around about him, artists then began to build their own studio houses. So what it ended up as being this really unique, and it still is a unique group of artists' purpose-built studio houses, all of which tell the story of what it was to be a successful artist in that late Victorian period and the wealth you could generate and the status that you enjoyed. This is very much, as well, the kind of establishment artist. These are all Royal Academicians, by and large. They've all received honours of various kinds, with Leighton as the president of the Academy very much at the the centre of it, with George Frederick Watts, the other kind of giant of Victorian art, living just across the back of the garden. So... So it is something special that these houses uh, still survive, and uh, one of them has recently been covered in the press, was um, sold by Michael Winner and bought by Robbie Williams. So, Oh, is that still, one? Right. So <laughs> we still have... Um, Another celebrated artist. We still have artists in, in residence. <laughs> and it also means that the soundtrack to a lot of the painting going on here would have been bleating farmyard animals and hammering from the neighbours. Yeah, it's interesting that although it's not off so so much a kind of rural or semi-rural setup, that building would have been a constant thing. That all of, either Leighton had the builders round, or his neighbours did, or the house across the back of the garden. So that was going on as well as the kind of rural little. Should we poke our noses through Leighton House, passing through one of those ebonised door frames there, gold leaf decoration and. Into Well, okay, so I I straight away get it, because the room we just came from was extremely pre-Raphaelite. If it wasn't a water house hanging on the wall, it was something a lot like one. And here we're in a room in which the curtains by the window and the pictures of trees correspond with each other in a very interesting way. One feels as though one has been transported to the forest. That's a bit overdone, but... No, you're absolutely right. That the, you move, I don't think I'm absolutely right. Well, but you, you move from a red room with a red-painted floor, and that red floor butts up against a blue floor. So you move through into a totally different kind of decorative environment. And in this room, the drawing room, was an interesting, in an artist's house, you don't really need a drawing room because your studio upstairs is actually your reception space, your principal reception space. So the drawing room, in Leighton's case, always seems to have been little furnished and to have actually been where he displayed his collection of landscape paintings, not by himself, but he had works by Constable, including um, a sketch for the Haywain, although the one that he had doesn't conform to any known one, so, so whether it really was a sketch for the Haywain. And then he had paintings by the French landscape painter uh, Corot, called The Times of the Day, and these were displayed, and we've had facsimiles made of them. They were displayed in a very particular way on the the uh, east sorry the west wall of this room and I often wonder whether the big bay window again was all deliberate in that you're very conscious from this room of the passing times of the day the sun moves around the room and then the pictures refer to that and certainly we found uh, when we were researching the restoration that a description that suggested the walls of this room were originally lined not with wallpaper but with fabric printed fabric and somebody who was helping us research the curtains found, uh, and fabric for this room, found an order for a company who manufactured bays. 
and the order was for Leighton, and it said, somebody had transcribed it, and it said, colour to match colour of carrots. And we thought, carrots? That sounds a very improbable thing. And then, of course, what we think it was was coros. So the colour was to match the colour of the painting. So exactly as you say, the, it's a case not of him decorating the room and looking for a picture that might go with his colour scheme. It's actually using the paintings as a kind of keynote from which he would extract colours in order to then create a harmonious setting for those particular pictures. So again, it's a very subtle way of linking the objects in the room to the decoration of it. And one has to understand, to make some of the juxtapositions that are going on here, work. And I guess it wouldn't take too much of a variation from the particular tones that Leighton himself had chosen for this to look awful and, and clashing and garish. So who is in charge of the artistic eye now in the restoration? Well, that's a, that, again, is a very interesting thing. And so it's sort of... Well, the way we did it uh, was to sort of adopt a kind of detached view. And what I mean by that is the evidence would tell us the floor in this room was painted peacock blue, say, and then we would get the paint experts to look and find that colour and then to match that colour and to say this is this is the colour that I believe that to be. And of course it's very easy then to think, well actually I don't think he meant that colour. I think he meant you know if we made it a bit lighter or a bit darker or change that's probably would be better. But really I tried very hard to resist that and just to say, well if that's that's what the evidence is telling us As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. 
Um, and so as far as was possible, we didn't intervene in any of those things. And the great thing was that then it all, it all did seem to work. And sometimes you sort of thought, this might, you know, is this going to work? And what is the effect going to be? You know, what happens when you paint the floor red? Will it all just look odd? But in fact, you know, as you say, the colours are not colours that necessarily would jump into everyone's mind as colours that you would combine. But they all work, and I think, you know, I think tempting as it is, it's good to just try and stick to the, um, to the evidence. I'm going to ask this question, and I ask with a particular purpose in mind. How long have you been in this job? Uh, too long, a long time, since, uh, since 2000, 1999, so a long time. Are, are you aware that if we were to ask you to stand in a particular way in this room, you could actually camouflage yourself? <laughs> Perhaps that was the subliminal, the subliminal force of uh, colour or uh, something. You're right. That just, that's never, never happened before. <laughs> we should move quickly. In fact, just keep moving so that yes. we don't lose. <laughs> We're passing through. I, I think you've got clever chimneys going on in this house as well. By the way, I noticed there's a there's a fireplace under a window there, and if that's functioning, that means there's hmm. uh, some smart stuff going on in the architecture. There were three instances of this, of fireplaces being put directly beneath windows with the obvious question of what happens to the smoke. The one in the drawing room we've just left is particularly ingenious because it has the window sitting immediately above the fireplace, but tucked into the cavity of the wall is a shutter. So it's possible to pull the shutter across the window, and on that shutter is a mirror. So it creates, when closed, the effect of a mirror simply hanging over a fireplace, and then when you push it back, you get the the view and all these instances there is a chimney a conventional chimney on the roof and it's just that the flue does a little sideways movement before it goes vertical in the library on this side of the the hallway it goes horizontally for about 10 feet before it goes vertically so quite how well they actually worked well we've never been brave enough to test it but until the end of the 1920s so long after he died there was no other way of heating the house so they must have worked well enough You'll have heard from the background noise that either somebody's left a tap on or there's a square pool in the centre of the hallway here and a foot-high fountain. Everything here says Turkey, I think. There is so much opulence here that my tongue's hanging out. The light is provided electrically by a chandelier that looks like a, a giant golden crown, a regal crown held by a piece of equipment that would probably give you a headache if it fell on you and it must be 30, 35 feet up to the domed ceiling light coming in through not just stained glass it it almost seems jewelled it is, absolutely this is the interior that this house is best known for what's called the Arab Hall so it was built as an extension to the original house and as far as we can see it was really motivated by a desire to display these wonderful tiles, these tiles which had been collected mostly from Damascus, but there are examples from Turkey as well, most of them dating from the end of the uh, 16th century, beginning of the 17th century, and as a collection of tiles of this kind are as important as any in any museum in this country. So the, the, these are the real business, and so, these yeah, aren't replacements? These aren't replacements, although there are a few where the originals were lost or not, uh, damaged where to complete a panel the um, potter the ceramicist William de Morgan who was an associate of William Morris had the job of arranging these tiles and then making 
facsimiles to fill the gaps, which he did incredibly skillfully. So I can point out where they are, but you would really have to look very carefully to realise. So it was another extension of this idea of creating a setting for a collection. And so the motivation for this seems to have been to create an atmospheric, evocative setting in which these tiles could be displayed. And he embarked on it in 1877. It cost significantly more than he'd spent on the original house just to create it. And as a result of this very substantial expense, he had no more kind of practical rooms. There were still no more bedrooms. There was still simply a a space in which he could entertain and which people could visit. And again, it ties into this idea that all along the house was built with the idea that people were going to see it. And so by creating this, he created something that, in a sense, nobody else could achieve. It it was a one-off Uh, and became the amount of press interest and coverage of the house grew hugely once this was built because people wanted to see it. It became one of the sort of sights of London to to enjoy. Which is a curious thing, really, given his desire for privacy. Again, it is, but it is that contrast between, on the one hand, that very public figure and at the same time being able... You know, so at the end of the day... At the end of the day, when the last guest left, he, you know, he shut the door and he was here by him by himself and uh, you know, always I think there was that tension between those two sides of his, his personality. Given your very particular view onto him, do you think you are any closer to knowing him than some of his contemporaries? I'm not sure I am. I mean I'm not sure I am. I think you could <laughs> you could think about him and study him for a very long time and still feel that you never really know. I mean, and that's partly a result because there's certainly correspondence and there's certainly information, I think, that uh, is no longer accessible to us that would give insights and provide some way of getting beyond that sort of public facade. But even, you know, we have a very substantial collection of his letters, but you could read them all and in a way still feel you were none the, <laughs> none the wiser. Do you think he was um, hiding something? Well, I mean, so there's one... There is certainly a sense of which, as he gets... As his career progresses and as he he gets more successful and grander and more important, in a sense, as a public figure, he becomes more private and more guarded. And there is a school of thought and that he had a relationship with a particular model whose stage name was Dorothy Dean from... Well, for about the last 18 years of his life... And she is the principal model throughout that period of time. He gets her to have elocution lessons. He gets her to have acting lessons. She does have a career on on the stage. There are accounts of him attending performances, kind of sitting in the front row and at at the end of the performance sort of standing up and applauding incredibly (laughs) loudly, sort of forcing everyone else to join in. And all of that kind of... Thing. And, and so she ended up living uh, just opposite Olympia, no distance at all from here. Um, but not here. Well, so the press say she would arrive early in the morning and part late in the evening. And there, and would, there would have been no scandal, presumably, in them getting together, would there? Well, there would, I mean, there would have been, in that he was the president of the Royal Academy and all of that, and she was... A lowly, uh, a lowly model and a nude model, and so there was ah. a great distinction at the time between 
those who would prepare to model nude and those who would model for the head, as it was described. Isn't that strange, though, that, that uh, people involved in the arts who would very definitely be surrounded by nude models a lot of the time, there, there should still be that enormous social chasm? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I was, I was reading recently that uh, when, in the 1890s, Leighton's, some of Leighton's work was, as reproductions, was on display in a shop window in Glasgow along with some of his contemporaries, and his painting was a nude, and uh, the police demanded that he would be removed from display as being offensive to the, or not, not beneficial to the public good, or whatever it was described. So, you know, even then there, there was real controversy about um, the display of the nude figure, and Leighton worked from the nude model sort of without exception. That was absolutely part of his, his working process. And so Dorothy Dean... Somebody has recently translated some letters written in Italian between a friend of Leighton's called Giovanni Costa and the Earl of Carlisle, who was an artist and friend of these artists. And there are references to Leighton's wife being here. And this is, she's not named, but is exactly at the period where... And and so Costa says he doesn't like coming to the house as much anymore because his wife is there and it's sort of awkward. So whether this is Dorothy Dean, we don't know, but, but uh, certainly that she was never acknowledged. The press speculated they were to marry, but she was never acknowledged as being here. So if you're asking, is there something secret? that he, It is possible that in those latter years of his life that she is so much part of the scene that he manages that by becoming more... Uh, drawing up the, the, the drawbridge and and becoming more remote. Although some, I mean, his immediate neighbour, Princep, and so on and so forth, must have been aware of whatever it was that was going on and whether Dorothy Dean, in effect, was living here or spent time here. But, you know, we are left to speculate. There is no definite evidence about any of it. And, in fact, his whole relationship with her is is disputed. Some would say that simply he, as somebody who had no children of his own, um, took an interest in her, thought she was worthy of his support and financially helped her and tried to get her a career as an actress, which is a step up from a model, but still, you know, the question about that would be why then did he continue to use her as a nude model, which couldn't do anything but categorise her or pigeonhole her to an extent socially. So, Hmm. Maybe he needed a friend. Well, I mean, I think that's also... Yeah, that, that, that this solitary figure perhaps um, needed someone with, that he could um, entirely feel relaxed and comfortable with. And you must you must spend a fair bit of time talking to your model. Absolutely. I mean, which is why which is why lots of them. I mean, you know, lots of them did have affairs with their models. I mean, that was absolutely is is known because they spent a lot of time with them and um, developed relationships with them over several years. That. One of the fascinating things about the house, in terms of the model, and it's a fact of all these artists' houses, is what great lengths they went to to manage the way the model comes into the house and accesses the studio. So they didn't come in the front door, the door that you and the public come through, nor did they go through the servant's door. There was a third door into the house only for the use of the model. A nude model's door? A nude model's door, which would lead into the back stairs or sometimes into a in some of the other houses, into a staircase that only leads up into the studio. So the model can't interact with any other part of the household, or Leighton didn't have a wife living here, but you know can't bump into the artist's wife or 
They're kept separate, and the idea of having a separate door in off the street is a way of indicating that the unaccompanied young woman coming and going through that door is a professional model coming to model for the artist, and it tries to remove any uncertainty about what their purpose in coming to the house would be. So they were very conscious about having to try and manage the model in a particular way. Just because of time, we need to continue our journey through the house, and uh, the obvious direction of travel is towards the staircase, which takes us between walls that are covered in turquoise-glazed tiles. Um, There's a sort of tie-dye effect going on there, which I'm sure has a correct name in the world of tiling. Again, small gold mosaic tiles providing a trim. And, well, of course, a stuffed peacock. Yeah, so that peacock is not Leighton's peacock, but he had one there in that position. I think absolutely deliberately to... Is it it a nude peacock? It's it's a... It's a fully feathered peacock, but um, it, it's there, I think, because the peacock was such an emblem of, of the aesthetic movement and of this period. But it does absolutely highlight that its breast with those wonderful colours of the breast are what is picked up and is the inspiration for the, the blue tiles that surround it. So it's just making us aware of that being a key note of the colour scheme of the house. I don't know if this is a good opportunity, you, you'll tell me, uh, to talk about the one of the fellows who provided tiling for the place, who I gather did so at rather a cost to himself. Mm. And perhaps that takes us on into talking about the financial mm. side the of financials. things. Yeah, no, so this is all William de Morgan, who arranged the tiles in the Arab Hall and then made these wonderful peacock blue turquoise tiles for the rest of the house. And he rejected a great many of the tiles that he made because he wasn't happy with the glaze and the colour but felt he couldn't disclose that to Leighton because he'd agreed a price with him and he didn't want to vary that price. So he, he swallowed the, the cost and therefore lost money on the job. Was his. But it was a wonderful commission to have, so he, I think, got over the financial loss. And in terms of cost of the whole house, well, when it first was built, it cost £4,500 was the published amount. And so to put that in context about the amount of money these artists could generate, so Leighton sold um, several pictures for more, individually for more than £4,500 a little later in his career, but literally is a picture equating to approximately the cost of, of the construction of the, of the house. And where these artists really cashed in uh, was the perfect formula would be to have a very successful picture at the Royal Academy, which you would sell for a very substantial sum, and then you would enter publishing agreements whereby reproductions, and it's at this time that the photogravure, we can see some examples here, which makes a very accurate, photographically-based reproduction, so a print as we would know it, not in colour but in very subtle shades of of grey, so a very faithful reproduction of the picture. So you have the smash hit picture, which whose fame travels, and then cash in by publishing rights, which allow these uh, reproductions to be made and sold with the whole empire at its height as your market. So you could then generate a whole another influx of cash that way, and and that's what's that's what's fueling this construction of these houses and the lifestyle that these artists are able to enjoy and it's again very noticeable that when the generation of artists die who built these houses I think the last of them is in the 1920s and managed to carry on till that point none of them are then bought by other artists who carry on living in this way the whole 
the whole sort of economics of it collapses with them. So the houses immediately become subdivided and altered. They no longer are the province of an artist. And again, well, we found ourselves talking about this uh, a visit to Dulwich Picture Gallery not so long ago, but that question of the ability to reproduce in art, in photography. Mm. I think we often forget about the innovations there and the consequences Mm. that they have for all aspects of accessibility. And I guess these reproductions here, I I suppose this is to be the sort of thing that somebody would have on their wall. Well, they they haven't got the money for the original, uh, but they want to show that they're cultural. That's exactly it. So the status of it is not a throwaway poster. It's sort of above that. And by your choice of image, you can be seen to be collecting the most progressive or the most... Uh, celebration. They they did them for old masterworks as well. So you can really show your taste and knowledge without anything like the expenditure of actually putting together a collection. So they they do have a have a certain status. I should uh, tell you by the way that we've moved into a room here again with the the trademark rugs of the house on the floor, and to one end is a bust by a small window in an arched alcove. There's a grand piano there, uh, baby grand. And on all of the walls, irregularly exhibited, are all sorts of uh, different pictures in different styles. A lot of gold frames, and the items that draw my eye immediately. I think, well, there's a picture I recognise here that I think is one of Leighton's best-known pieces. It's the one I described earlier, the woman uh, reaching out to the heavens as though imploring God. There's a picture here of a very imperial and imperious looking person leaning on what might be a lute or the back of a chair, I'm not sure, and they're looking out, they seem to have a laurel wreath, they're looking out from the darkness. And then another picture over here which again seems to have a classical air about it and uh, beyond that I'd struggle to say too much, it's a group picture, I'm a little bit reminded of a Titian. What's good here? Well, so this is his big painting studio, and we've come up that staircase. So, so again, it's all quite theatrical. That the staircase moves around three sides of, of the staircase hall, and then you emerge into this great big studio. So, again, if many of the callers to the house would only be coming to perhaps have their portrait painted or commission a picture or meet the artist, and so they'd be met at the front door by the butler escorted up this grand staircase and then into this great big studio so again it's all about creating that kind of maximum impact but the studio had to be big because they were often working on big canvases they simply did need a big space in which to manipulate them so the paintings that um, you pointed out so to start this one which is called the death of Brunelleschi and so this is significant in Leighton's career because it's basically his diploma picture. It's the picture that he painted um, at the art school in Frankfurt when he completed his training. So he's 21, 22 at the time that it's produced. And what it's showing is the architect of the Duomo, the Dome of Florence Cathedral, Runeleski, whose dying wish was to be taken to view it for the last time. So that's him dying there. Leighton's father agreed to model for the man holding his hand and his sister, the young woman sitting at the bottom right of the picture. And I suppose as a young artist, what it's doing is, I suppose, talking about the immortality of art, that the the creation of the architect will long outlive him and will be a permanent record of his genius. And so as a young artist, perhaps he's suggesting that that's uh, how art should be or its potential Um, it's been pointed out that the perspective of it and the way the buildings 
there's immediate balcony and the structure supporting that balcony don't quite line through in a very effective way but we can forgive him that and typically of late and the way he painted this was he wouldn't let anybody see it so he would retreat to a studio where he worked on it in secret and then revealed it to his fellow students and the uh, teachers at the at the school where he was and everybody fell about in amazement at how how more, much more accomplished and uh, successful his uh, painting was than theirs and that he he already was I think keen to show how developed his abilities were and and the promise that he had as a young man and then it sort of bookends the collection because so that's a very very early picture before he's really established any kind of professional career and opposite it is the painting that he was working on in this room at the time that he died in January 1896 so it was never actually completely finished and for all that it is a much simpler picture isn't it it is it is and it's even in the cloud scape it's quite for Leighton quite loosely painted you can actually see the thickness of the the paint uh, on there Um, earlier in his career and and so often he was criticised still still kind of is criticised for the overworked finish the kind of perfection of the finish on the picture even his great friend Watts said that only if Leighton would only allow the incidental into his painting, how much better it would be for it. But the way Leighton worked was an incredible process whereby all of these pictures, it was a million miles away from the idea that you would walk up to a blank canvas with a paintbrush and just start painting and see what happened. By the time he got to that stage, he knew exactly, I mean, exactly what was going to happen pretty much in that... Each of these pictures would be preceded by um, a whole sequence of drawn studies in chalk on coloured paper, black and white chalk on coloured paper. For a complex painting, there might be 20, 30, 40 of those drawings made, where he would draw all the figures nude. Then he would make studies which were really all about the draperies. Um, Then he would make a finished drawing. Then he would make a squared-up drawing, which would then be translated to the canvas. Then in monochrome, he would then paint the figures nude on the canvas. Then he would paint the draperies and following the studies he'd made to the fold. I mean, it wasn't a question of, I made that study and I know roughly what I'm doing. It would be literally having the drawing next to the canvas and copying his study onto the canvas. So... The figures nude in monochrome, the draperies are in monochrome, and then only at the last stage does the colour start to be applied. And that sort of idea that Leighton was... His pictures were very very perfect, but not revealing of himself. And what was seized on about this picture, Clytie, at the end of his life, was that that guard had somewhat dropped. And the picture, both in its subject matter and the way it was painted was more revealing of himself and as you suggested it so the story is of Clytie the nymph who falls in love with Apollo the sun god and god of poetry and he abandons her so she falls to her knees for I cannot remember seven days and seven nights imploring his return and in the end he takes pity on her and turns her into a flower often seemed to be the sunflower which there after follows the path of the sun forever and so what we see here is the figure of of Clytie on her knees and the model for this again almost certainly is Dorothy Dean the actress who was the model for so many of these late pictures and we can see this 
spectacular skyscape with the idea of the sun disappearing over the line of hills in front of her. And so what it was interpreted as being was Leighton being conscious for the last year of his life. He had angina, he had a problem where he'd suddenly be seized by a, a tremendous pain in his chest and couldn't work. And so that this was about the idea of power of the sun, which of course for an artist and is a particularly significant idea, diminishing and departing and so it's about his loss of that kind of creativity, the power of the sun and if you like the waning of life altogether and so when he died his coffin was originally placed in this room and this picture was put at the head of the coffin because it was straight away seen as being in some way appropriate and um, then the tradition was, I think it probably still is, that in the summer after an artist dies who's been a Royal Academician, one picture is shown at the Royal Academy the next year as a memorial to them, and this was the picture that was, was shown there. So it's really very much bound up with that last period of his life and this idea of it perhaps being more about himself and about his feeling for where he is and that point in his, his life. And I, and I think, again, with Leighton, we're very keen to seize on that because there's so little to seize on. You almost want him to have that kind of emotion to be displayed because he displays it so reluctantly and uh, infrequently. I, I can't help what was... Everything that you've talked about and the fact of this place and the extremes to which... Uh, the, the extremes that have been gone to to create the, this particular environment, everything being just so, speaks to a personality that is built around being in control to the nth degree, uh, being absolutely in control, not necessarily controlling, but being in control. I wonder what it must have been like for him to start to feel his powers waning. But I think you've absolutely put your finger on something. I mean, that was one of the things that's regularly talked about him by his contemporaries is this absolutely sort of rigorous use of time that he knew what he was doing every day for weeks and months ahead and he would rigorously stick to what he was doing weeks and months ahead and everything had an allotted time and he would undertake. And I think that's not having any guest accommodation is part of the same thing, that he's willing to be sociable and people come here and enjoy the house but he wants them to leave so that the next day he can just pick up his routine and he doesn't have to accommodate people. And, and uh, he had the great friend called Giovanni Costa, an Italian painter, and, and Costa commented on this kind of timekeeping, an obsessive, almost what we would see as a sort of compulsive thing, and uh, how Leighton would contact him and say, I'm coming to Italy and I'll meet you on the steps of this church in this town at half past nine on Thursday the 25th of June or whenever it would be, and he would absolutely yeah, be there. And Costa, as uh, an Italian, if it's, that's not unfair to say, I mean, couldn't are you, get sure, are you sure you're, you want to say <laughs> what you're about to say? But he couldn't get his head around it. I mean, he couldn't understand how anybody could function in that kind of way. Um, and so there was something about Leighton that was very... And this process of making all these hundreds of drawings before he embarked on painting, it's all incredibly systemized and um, deliberate and methodical 
and you know I think coping with the unexpected wouldn't have come naturally to him at all we'd have a personality disorder label to slap on that these days I suspect yeah no and I've talked to people who've been here who who have unhesitatingly done that and uh, said that everything one thinks about him does suggest a personality that has uh, is a very driven and very controlled personality and Oh, this, this is probably relevant. There's another a very revealing example of this when, when Leighton becomes the president of the Royal Academy and there's a dinner held for him and he's defeated John Everett Millet, the pre-Raphaelite artist, to become the president. And Millet gets up and gives an impromptu speech and a very moving speech about how he'd had aspirations but now he recognises Leighton's the better person and everybody um, is moved by what he says and applauds. And then Leighton gets up and he's prepared a speech, and he's incapable of responding in the spirit in which Millet has spoken. So he just reads his prepared speech, and everybody sort of says, well, somehow it didn't, you know, it didn't capture the moment. It didn't, because I think, again, that, uh, just that sort of improvising and uh, being spontaneous in that way was, uh, was difficult for him. He sounds very Victorian. Yeah, perhaps that's right. We've uh, speaking of uh, timekeeping, as we were, we, we unfortunately have come to the end of ours, and we've we've got to uh, start to come to a close. You've just announced, didn't was it by the Guardian, the exhibition uh, coming up? Yeah, well, this is a great uh, moment for the house. So Leighton is really now best known for one picture, Flaming June, which is of a sleeping woman in this brilliant orange draperies with the Mediterranean Sea behind her. And this picture is in Puerto Rico, and it's been in Puerto Rico since the early 1960s and has never been back to the house here in which it was painted. And it's really become a, you know, it's certainly the most reproduced image of any Victorian British picture, and we're reuniting it with other pictures that Leighton sent to the Royal Academy in 1895. So this was the last set of pictures he sent to the Royal Academy, so little did he know that he would, he would be dead before that year was over so to reunite the pictures in the house where they were painted and with flaming june at the centerpiece of it i'd say it's a very uh, special moment for for us and i think people would love the idea of seeing it back here and in the company of those other pictures so that will be from november early november of uh, this year one final question what became of dorothy dean well so um she was left some money. She was left £5,000, which is a considerable sum of money. Um, another thing called the Dean Trust was set up to support her siblings. But she lived for less than three years after Leighton died and died of some horrible internal inflammation, peritonitis, I think it was. Um, and by that time, her career had already faded, and I think she'd already been in in ill health there are many photographs of of her and her sisters where she she i mean extremely beautiful and there is a picture of her at that stage in her career where already or stage of her life where ill health looks like it has robbed her of of uh, that and leighton did say towards the end of his life that it would have been better for her if he had not got involved in trying to support her and involving himself in whatever way that was in her her life. So although she was left this large sum of money, she didn't live very long to, to enjoy it, which is a, a sad end for her. Well, thanks very much for closing that story there. And, and from Leighton House Museum, Daniel Robbins, thanks very much. Thank you very much. And 
that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Daniel Robbins. Thanks too to Anna Garcia and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. And then Quentin Morf. Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.